0: can we understand something as complicated as a war an economic crisis who do we ask politics is too important to leave to experts we're all affected by it and we can't ignore it you know more than you think and you can learn what you don't know i'm justin pojor and this is the Ossington circle a podcast to help you understand the world and maybe even change it Hello and welcome to the Ossington Circle. I'm very excited to be here today. I have Judy Reaver on the line. Judy Reaver is the author of the new book, In Praise of Blood, The Crimes of the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Um, This book is, for me, I've been studying uh, the Congo and when you start studying the Congo, you realize you have to study Rwanda. Uh, so I've been studying the Congo and Rwanda since probably around 2009 really extensively and, and quite a bit before that too. And for me, this book is like, fills in so many of the missing pieces that I had not um, had or that I had to get a little piece here and a little piece there. And and the evidence in this book is so solid it's so well researched and also, um, as I will be praising Judy, it's also really, really well written and it's, it's like a really fast and, and, uh, and really moving read. Um, so I, I'm really excited to have Judy on to talk about the book and, and kind of go through not just the book, but also the whole story of Central Africa in the past, I don't know, 30 years or so. Um, so Judy welcome to the show
1: hi Justin thanks for having me
0: so Judy you know your your book uh, people can read excerpts of your book in the Globe and Mail and in I think the Toronto Star you've got a great interview on as it happens with the CBC that I was sending around I but I wanted to I wanted to just like first talk about how you came into this story and and uh how, you, how long you've been working on it and what the basis for the book is, what the material for the book is. So I guess you went to Congo in 1997 with Agence France Press. Is that right? I went in
1: 1997, that's right, a few days yeah. after Kagame's forces toppled uh, an alien dictator named Mobutu Seize Seko. And I was actually uh, a journalist with... Uh, RFI which is uh, Radio France Internationale oh, okay. Um, okay. but uh, you know it was uh, really m- my first time in a war zone uh, first time oh. in a conflict zone I should say and uh, I had been to Africa briefly but uh, it was a baptism by fire I had gone there uh, and uh, to cover the humanitarian crisis that had resulted uh, from uh, the invasion by Rwanda and Uganda of what was then Zaire and that uh, became renamed Congo. And there were hundreds of thousands of Congolese displaced by that invasion. And, uh, of course, uh, Kagame's, one of his principal aims was to bust up the um, attack and, and disperse the uh, more than a million Hutu refugees, Rowan and Hutu refugees that had settled in eastern Zaire after the genocide. And he wanted to get at them, control them. And, and then there was a whole uh, other story about um, attacking them. And so I went directly into Congo and ended up in uh, the forest of Congo with local humanitarian workers and They were uh, doing uh, about twice a week at that point uh, very uh, difficult journeys into the forest to locate survivors of attacks by Kagame's Mm -hmm. army of Rwandan Hutu refugees. And so these were um, uh, kids, well, not kids, they were young people in their early 20s, Um, that I was with, and they were from uh, Doctors Without Borders, UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, and the Red Cross, and a few others. And so I went in, and uh, that's where we were. We were south of Kissingani um, and uh, near uh, an old railroad uh, in, in the depths of the forest. And so you can ask me about that a bit more, but then there was that uh, it, it was really quite um, chilling, uh, some of those search and rescue missions, which uh, I happen to be a part of briefly.
0: You have this paragraph on page five where you say, Over the, over the past five years, I've devoted myself full time to understanding the dynamics of Kagame's violence prior to, during, and after the genocide. Uh, this book is a testament to the courage of some 200 direct and contextual witnesses of RPF crimes, including officials who worked at the UN Tribunal, a setup in the aftermath of the genocide. So you've been talking to victims. You've been talking to participants. You've spoken to people who could literally be characterized as killers. You've spoken to investigators. Um, so you've really looked at this story from almost every angle.
1: Yes, I, I have. There were, you know, I, I put the, uh, the uh, sources into... Four categories, if you will. I mean, you mentioned it. Mm -hmm. The first group of people who gave me compelling evidence uh, of war crimes committed by Kagame and his forces were those victims in the jungle more than 20 years ago. Uh, I collected very riveting and disturbing testimony from them, also from local aid workers. We saw a lot of international expats in the region who did not want to talk about what they knew was going on. So what I got was f- directly uh, from the victims and local aid workers from Congo. Then, uh, in the intervening years, I met a lot of uh, Hutu victims uh, throughout uh, Europe, uh, North America, and also in Africa, because I traveled in Africa a- after, and um, Mm-hmm. Then I moved on to uh, – because I had to understand some of these crimes in, in – um, I had needed more anecdotes. I needed to understand the dynamics and methods used. So I realized mm-hmm. the only way I was going to understand that was to go inside the RPF. And the way in which I did this was to locate, find people who had been part of the Rwandan Patriotic Front and its army, the RPA and interview them about what they knew. And I found people, and I found people who uh, not only knew about these crimes but were directly involved. Some of them had testified at uh, international tribunals. Some of them had not. So there was that. Those are the three principal um, sources. And then there was another layer that happened in the last five years. I got access to confidential documents from the UN – uh from uh some some were um uh you know testimonies from uh trials, but uh the most illuminating were from a special investigations unit that was set up clandestinely to investigate these crimes by Kagame's troops but then buried the evidence and and didn't actually prosecute uh, him or any of his commanders
0: what I want to do Judy is I want to kind of take us back um historically very early, like 59, 60, 61, Congo, Burundi, and Rwanda all become independent. And in Rwanda, there is this revolution, and it's like a Hutu, it's billed as a Hutu and democratic revolution because Hutus are the demographic majority, and that group kind of argued that if, if it was a democracy and people vote, uh, then the Hutus should be in power. Um, historically, the Tutsis were a kind of a privileged caste uh, favored by the Belgian c- colonialists. And so the Tutsi um, political party was called itself uh, a nationalist party. So there's this kind of um, contrast between nationalism, which actually privileged the existing privileged class, and uh, democracy, which also had this kind of ethnic um, aspect to it, so in that in the process of that revolution, several thousands, hundreds of thousands, I think, of Tutsis were displaced. They were made into refugees, and a lot of them settled in Uganda. And some of these Ugandan refugees were children. Among them, Paul Kagame himself, the current president of Rwanda and these refugees uh when they grew up actually uh many of these young men who were who grew up as refu- Rwandan refugees grew up in Uganda and then uh by a series of historical accidents became a part of Yoweri Museveni's re- resistance uh, or, or army that then took power in uh 1986 so I just want that was my that was my summary of of the origin story of the military force that became the Rwandan Patriotic Front. If you wanted to add or or nuance that at all, if there was anything crude in there that you wanted to change or correct, I'd I'd give you a chance before. Yeah, I, keep going. I,
1: I think that more or less summarizes a good part of it. Of course, there were other Tutsis who were uh, who found uh, homes and uh, left. Rwanda during the late 50s, early 60s for other neighboring countries. But we had, as you're right, a big block of Rwandans who settled in refugee camps and throughout uh, Uganda during that time. And uh, Kagame and a number of his people um, colleagues ended up, as you said, as part of 70s Museveni's uh, Rebel force that overthrew, helped overthrow Idi Amin, and then overthrew Milton Obote, and so by the by the late eighties, we, we see Kagame um, and and his uh, Rwandan counterparts, uh, soldiers and officers, as an integral part of the Ugandan army.
0: Yeah. I th- uh, the figure that I have is there were about 20% of Museveni's forces when they yes, were rebels. Yes, yes.
1: And so what you're seeing there historically as well, and this is very important. I don't emphasize this enough in my book, perhaps, but the the tactics that you wary Museveni mm-hmm. and his rebels, including those Rwandan men, um, learned and yeah. used during the rebellion. Were were key uh, features of how the Rwandan Patriotic Army uh, uh, waged war initially in 1990 in October and onward when when they invaded Rwanda when they decided that they were going to reclaim their space and reclaim their. Their homeland, yeah. so um, they benefited. They were part of the Ugandan army, and of course, when they invaded, when when the Rwandan patriotic army invaded and waged its uh, invasion war, they had at least initially the support of the considerable support of the Ugandan military.
0: Yeah, so let me let me just go through some of these tactics and methods that were characteristic of the Ugandan, but it was called the Bush War from 1981 to 1986 that put Museveni, that ended with Museveni in power. So in particular, the the strategy um, that Museveni had was kind of like leftist methods of organization, uh, you know, like that you might read in Mao or the Vietnamese, but not leftist redistributive politics. So one quote was, Uh, This is from a military history by Cooper and Fontenelle's 2015. Uh, Although the National Resistance Army, that's the 70s army, used a typical leftist vocabulary and was organized along classic Leninist and Maoist patterns, its ideology was first and foremost nationalistic. It never attempted to implement any kind of radical social changes. Um, And the RPF followed that pattern as well. Now, in terms of tactics... Um, there were there's some important assassinations that Museveni's forces did. Uh, there was a commander, Major General David Oyite Ojok, who was killed in a helicopter crash in 1983, which was a major victory for Museveni. Um, there was uh, again. I'm going to quote a, this same military history: uh, torture, rape, and murder of civilians supo- suspected of supporting the other side, uh, and then. Um, when Museveni was in power in 1989, they fought a, count, a counterinsurgency campaign in northern um, uh, Uganda, and, and at this time, Kagame himself and Fred Rigema, another major leader, were heavily were in the high command of Museveni's military. And here's another quote. Uh, the counterinsurgency in 1989 involved the policy of forced relocation of 120,000 villagers into protected camps to create free fire zones. Uh, unquote. And another one, uh, one famous commander from the Ar- who later became uh, part of the RPF is named Chris Bunyanese, and he was well known for locking 120 suspected enemy sympathizers into a rail wagon at a railway station, leaving them inside. Uh, to suffocate. 69 died from thirst, heat, and lack of breathing space, and in these camps that they created, an average of 15 people died each day as a result of harsh living conditions and endemic outbreaks of cholera and dysentery. So these are all, when you read these things that were done by uh, Rwandan commanders, who later became the core of the RPF in Uganda, and you see that they were doing this as part of their insurgency and as part of their counterinsurgency in the in nineteen uh, you know in the late nineteen eighties, it's the consistency is pretty remarkable. Yes,
1: I mean, and the interesting thing is you uh, you mentioned the late eighties. You have a campaign by Museveni and his uh, army against the uh, Northerners, against the Achole people. This is an ethnic group. And you have, I mean, and Robert Gersney is a is a consultant who, uh, from War Zones, and he he documented some of the the terrible atrocities um, that were difficult to explain going on uh, in northern Rwanda against the Acholi, uh, that in some ways radicalized elements of those people, um, and there were these tremendous awful cattle raids, and where the uh, attacks on these people, taking everything that they needed to survive land and uh, uh, food. Uh, And and no one knew who these attacks uh, were attributed to. No one knew who who staged them. But clearly it was, uh, we, we have over the last several decades now, a number of decades, we have uh, more and more evidence suggesting that those attacks were staged by his army. These were they were in control of that zone. They had pushed these people to the brink, relocated them, as you mentioned, and and taken away their livelihood. So the, I mean, that's just it. it it's uh, not as graphic, obviously, as I could make it, but those those, those were documented staged attacks.
0: And in fact, uh, just before your book. Uh, last year there was a book by Helen Epstein I don't know uh, if you know this book another yes. fine mess it's called and it's specifically about US and Western support for Museveni uh, and and you know ends up talking quite a bit about uh, about Rw- Rwanda and Kagame as well because Museveni and Kagame are so close um, but one of the things one of the things she talks about is is actually uh, some eyewitness accounts of those exact raids. So the raids um, in Uganda on the Rwandan border that happened just before mm-hmm. the invasion, and so just before the just before Kagame invades Rwanda in 1990, um, there's there's these incredible cattle raids, and then there's this massive. Uh, basically meat smoking operations that this uh, government official from Uganda describes in which basically what they're doing is they, they seized all these, all these cattle from uh, Ugandan villagers and they killed, they slaughtered them on mass and they, uh, they basically smoked it all. um, Preparing, packing their lunch, basically preparing for the invasion of, of Rwanda because they knew that it would be some time before they got another chance to resupply uh, their mm-hmm. logistics so it's this it, it's this incredible like I, I'm trying to find the quote because I I did write it down but I'm I'm having a bit of trouble but it's in Helen Epstein's book and there's this official who describes these gigantic ovens where they were do- smoking like unbelievable amounts of of, cattle, of of beef, um, and they were doing it just before they uh, invaded because they they um, they took Ruhengeri, as we'll we'll get into, uh, fairly quickly. But between that, between taking the breadbasket of Rwanda and, uh, and 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 in and leaving Uganda, there was some period of time when they had to uh, sort of fend for themselves, and they did that using. Uh, material stolen from Ugandan villagers. So now, um, now I, now I want to switch to Rwanda because uh, Rwanda in the eighties was actually um, ripe for the picking in a couple of ways. One way is there was a politically, there was a democratic movement for multi-party democracy that was starting to pressure um, the president, Javier to to allow a multi-party system. And economically, uh, there had been some, there had been a famine, but also there had been a structural adjustment that made the famine way worse, uh, you know, organized all by the IMF and the World Bank, the International Mo- Monetary Fund and the World Bank. So when the, this Rwandan, um, the, these Rwandan fighters were in Uganda, and they were watching what happened in Rwanda. They were seeing an economic, a country that was economically collapsing, a country where there was pressure for um, change. And they thought, if we invade, or they must have thought, if we invade, this country is going to fall into our laps. So can you, can you tell me a little bit about what you found out about the debates within the RPF Prior to that invasion, prior to when they invaded Rwanda well, in 1990. It's, uh,
1: it's, it's not something I've explored very deeply, but I do, do know in speaking with uh, uh, many of the founders of the RPF, uh, you know, th- they were clearly uh, cognizant of Javier Amana's gesture before they invaded, uh, international announcement and gesture, gesture that he was going to accept, uh, the, in principle, the return of all these to see refugees. So this, uh, this was something he was pressured to do. He waited too long to do this. Uh, but under the Arusha peace accords and, uh, under, um, which came later, of course, but under, uh, you know, the conditions, there were economic, uh, Conditions to receiving aid, and as you mentioned, economically uh, there were uh, so many problems, and there was deep uh, food insecurity uh, in, in Rwanda. So basically, Ramana was forced to uh, make a lot of concessions, and uh, he agreed uh, that uh, to see refugees would come home. Now. The founders I spoke to said they did not trust him, and so they felt that um, that was an empty uh, uh, announcement, and that he would use delaying tactics uh, to, uh, to actually um, accept this. And so it would turn out for it would turn out to be years before uh, people in the RPF would ever find uh, their place. And so, but the other aspect to this is, I mean, this is all really speculation, you know, when people say what would have been. I, I think there are a number of, uh, even at that state, uh hardliners, hardline members, Kagame and others named Wassa, who... Wanted to reclaim power, uh, pure and simply. So you, you had some of the more democratic or progressive members of the RPF who were skeptical, but who felt that they a time had come to go back, and this was the way to do it. Fred Regima was seen as somehow more of a moderate, and then you had Kagame and his hardline wing, who uh, believed, according to a lot of people I've spoken to, believed at you know, taking back power at all costs for the minority. So um, and then you saw those um, that struggle play out after uh, after the RPA, uh, uh, after the invasion. Fred Regima gets killed very quickly. Kagame over in the United States.
0: Fort Leavenworth. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Fort Leavenworth in Kansas.
1: Lo and behold, he's over there during uh, an an incredible event in history when his army uh, invades uh, Rwanda. Paul Kagame's in the U.S. Um, and take what you will from that. And and uh, Fred gets killed on the battlefield in in eastern Rwanda. <coughs> Kagame comes flying home very quickly, assumes. Uh, Complete control of the army and changes tactics um, dramatically in the sense that he begins very quickly, within days and weeks, to wage a scorched earth campaign. And I say that because he used the civilian population in the north, principally Buyumba, um, as a, a, you know, a target, and and, and attacked villagers uh, and uh, forced them. Uh, to move downward as a way in which to capture territory. And it worked. And a number of the more moderate members of the Rwandan Patriotic Army said this is not – Cool. Uh, one in particular I spoke to uh, almost was executed after a military trial uh, because he uh, openly uh, criticized and objected to these methods. He said, "This is not going to work. This is going to end in disaster," um, and mm-hmm. they nearly, uh, you know, killed him. But then. Uh, at that stage, they needed all hearts and minds on the invasion. So uh, clearly, what we saw was a very, the beginnings of and the persecution, prosecution of a very dirty war.
0: When, when they when they started, Kagame comes back. Regema's plan. Fred Regema was probably probably outranked uh, Kagame at the time. And he had more of a more of a kind of guerrilla warfare, win the people over type of plan. Some Hutus, some prominent Hutus from the Democratic Movement, also sympathized or joined the RPF. Right, Seth Sendashanga, being probably the the most notable, but there were also um, you know there were also members of Habyarimana's entourage who had defected, like Alexis Kanyarengwe and Theonest Lizend. Right, so. There were all these people that had a different idea of what the RPF could be. And Kagame came and imposed a a very specific and very, very ruthless kind of concept on the whole war.
1: Absolutely. But I think uh, if you listen to some of the um, ideologues, who, some who are, who have left, who broke with the RPF, and they talk about those early years, and they still seem to think that, um, you know, he took power and he steered the invasion. He was kind of a military strategist, but it, 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 um, ended up successful in a sense where he had, uh, they, Pushed Rwanda to the brink in the sense, but then they managed to negotiate themselves a very good position in terms of they they held Rwanda hostage and they they basically uh, had Habyarimana by the throat in the sense that you know by the end of it in 1993 uh, there were a million uh, Hutus displaced in camps. Um, and, uh, the Arusha Accord, uh, had been negotiated and set up so as to give, uh, Tutsis, Kagame, and his commanders, uh, a very much, uh, a high percentage of control of a future army in Rwanda after, uh, the broad-based, uh, government was going to be in place had Habi Aramana not been assassinated. So they, they, they actually achieved militarily and politically uh, many gains, astonishing gains. It was described as kind of a maximalist approach that actually worked uh, uh, in convincing the international community that these people, that were one a patriotic army, Kigami, these people needed to be listened to.
0: One element of how they did this, was through Western military and financial support laundered through Uganda. here i'm just reading again a a military book by a military history called the just called the rwandan patriotic front 2015 and cooper the resources obtained from the rwandan diaspora could never have been sufficient to cover the needs of an entire army in regards of arms and ammunition this is where ugandan support was as important in regards of provision as a place for Delivery for equipment purchased abroad. Much of surplus Ugandan stocks mysteriously disappeared in RPA depots. And at this time, 60% of Uganda's foreign currency resources came from foreign aid. So uh, one observer, I think it was, uh, yeah, Gerard Prunier, who I have many problems with, but he wrote in 1995 that the World Bank contributed unwittingly, unwittingly, to the RPF victory in the Rwandese Civil War. So, what was, so in those, in those years we, you, we were just talking about 1990 to 1993, uh, Kagame, when he took over, he had 5,000 soldiers. By the end, he had by, or, you know, by 1994, he had 25,000 and they were supplied through Uganda, uh, through essentially various covert and, um, laundered kind of programs where the west would supply uganda and the uganda ugandan weapons would somehow mysteriously end up in the hands of kagame's forces
1: well i think basically the rwandan patriotic army was recruiting and and training people from everywhere from all over the diaspora from burundi from congo and uh from uh, you know the whole region, not just Uganda. But you're right. The the actual um, funding of the military. That I mean, the United States was backing Uganda strongly at that point. Remember, right? Helen puts this uh, very clearly. She explores this. I mean, you have Museveni, who the United States saw as a key. Allied then uh, against the, the Su- against Sudan, Museveni had developed very close contacts with Sudanese rebels, and the United States saw long term uh, Museveni as a pivotal person in its in its geopolitical wars, in its geopolitical strategy, gaining oil, gaining access to areas of the world. And so, Museveni was not only getting a lot of development aid from the West, but getting military supplies. And, I mean, it it becomes uh, a a big debate among Rwandans the extent to which uh, Ugandan arms and ammunition and soldiers were used uh, directly by Kagame's army in the invasion war, but I mean, we can we can uh, debate the nuances of that, and some people within the RPF will disagree about the percentages. But basically, they uh, the RPA got substantial, substantial support from Museveni's army uh, that had received uh, clear uh, backing from the United States.
0: Also, you mentioned the recruiting from Burundi and Congo, and there's an interesting kind of, I wouldn't say maybe split, but um, a kind of a hierarchy within the Rwandan patriotic front where the Ugandans, who are Anglophones, are kind of at the top, um, that's Kagame's group, and then there are Congolese Tutsis and Congolese, uh, you know, Rwanda the so-called Banyamulenge, who are Francophone, who are in a little bit of a lower position in the on the hierarchy, and and likewise with the Burundian Francophones, right?
1: Yes, I think um, you know it, it becomes crude these categories, but I can give you just briefly vulgarizing. How, how how the RPA was set up and how all the other Tutsis and another, you know, the Hutus were grouped or viewed in terms of a hierarchy. The Ugandan wing, um, those are Rwandans who were raised in Uganda. The Ugandan wing were the most important. They decided uh, the strategies of war and they were the ones who owned and, one, and felt that they had the most to reclaim and the sense of entitlement. Um, so they're the most important. They're at the top. Then uh, there were various shades after that. The Burundian uh, Tutsis, uh, the Tutsis who had been exiled to Burundi uh, because of their ties to uh, the former monarchy and a lot of the royal um, Uh, lineage there of Tutsis were seen as second. And uh, you see a lot of the the Rwandan commanders now who married Burundian Tutsis. So those were the Tutsis who grew up in Burundi. They married a lot of these women. So there, that was second category. Then Congo was was seen. The Congolese Tutsis, the the Tutsis who had gone and lived in Congo, were, were third. Then the interior Tutsis. A fourth category, less important, more contempt for the interior Tutsis because they were seen as having aligned themselves with Habyarimana and stayed there. So there was a lot of mistrust among the Ugandan wing uh, uh, for the interior Tutsis, and then of course the Hutus were on the bottom.
0: Yes, yes, and that's a uh, that's okay. So now here we are. It's nineteen ninety three the the Rwandans have, or the RPF has established, a tr- you know, that it's a powerful force. It's, it's occupying uh, a bit of, quite a bit of Northern um, Rwanda. They've been stopped from taking the whole country basically by the fr- by Javier alliance with the French. So the French stopped them from kind of completing the invasion at that point. Um, and, and, and the United Nations comes, so we have Romeo Dallaire, uh, head of this United Nations force. He is told he's going to take a command in uh, Rwanda, and he says, "Oh, Rwanda! That's in Africa, isn't it?" Um, and and he goes he goes over there. Uh, we've I'm sh- we've both read his book, when uh, we were both struck by the same. Um, passage in 1993, where he's going up to northern Rwanda for his first meeting with Kagame. He passes through this horrific scene at a refugee camp of thousands and thousands of Hutus living in this, in this squalor. Uh, people are dying of preventable diseases. Then he goes north, uh, further north to the RPF-controlled part of Rwanda, which is empty. The villages are empty. And then he goes and meets Kagame and he says, wow, this guy's amazing. Somehow not quite making the connection that this amazing person that he's meeting, the Napoleon of Africa maybe, uh, is the same person that displaced those empty villages and put all those refugees in camps.
1: Well, I think he he does acknowledge that Kagame uh, didn't really want... Um, those people to go back home. But uh, he acknowledges that keeping uh, the Kagame and keeping them in the squalor in those uh, camps uh, was probably might have been a strategy uh, to create, to bring the Tutsi returnees into that zone eventually. Because um, they're interested and, and, in land there,
0: partly. Yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, so much of Rwandan history is about land. Yeah. Um and uh, so he acknowledges that, but it is clear, and it's been clearer over the years, that uh, Romeo Dallaire uh, had admiration for Kagame in many ways. He might have seen aspects of him that were disturbing. Uh, I think there's there are hints of that. Uh, you do get a sense in "Shake uh, Hands uh, with the Devil" that. You know, there's a ruthlessness uh, about how the war was raged, uh, waged. But um, I think there's a sense o- as well of, of admiration. And he he has uh, remained uh, or gotten closer to the RPF, I think, over the years. So but in in any case, it was very difficult. And I point this out in my book for uh Unamir for the UN peacekeeping force for the force commander who Dallaire, uh, was Delaire was Delaire and also Luc Marchal who was uh, Kigali contingent commander uh, to actually see what was going on. There was uh, an acknowledgement of some kind of third force, mm-hmm. unknown oh, yeah, yeah. force, committing um, these uh, atrocities or or staging attacks, and and uh, the UN not knowing who was doing this, it turned out the uh, RPF was uh, throwing grenades uh, and and attacking civilians they were waging terrorist attacks around the capital and in the capital and in other areas, and they were actually killing uh, Hutu politicians and yes. stoking unrest in the run-up yes. to the genocide. Gap so, easy.
0: Uh, easy, right? Gadabazi, and I think uh, I think it's interesting because I just want to interrupt because this is especially where your book. Fills in some some incredible details because I, I read Prunier's book several times, uh, the Rwanda crisis, and mm-hmm. uh, it, you know he de- he describes the the Hutu refugees leaving the north based on superstition, and you know the, they believed that the RPF was was actually devils, and that's why they ran away. And uh, they be- there's this uh, Rwandan obedience, like their people, their commander, their mayors told them to flee, so they fled, and it was all part of a big strategy. That's one kind of mystery. Like, do people really just flee because of superstition, like leave their homes and their villages behind because of superstition. And then the other piece is this third force, because when, when Prunier writes about these assassinations of, of these uh, Hutu politicians, he talks about it and he suddenly switches to the, the passive voice, right? He says, you know, this politician was at home and he was filled with bullets and he died. And you're like, how did that happen? Did the bullets just fly from, from nowhere? And, the, the last little piece, before I read your book, the only idea that I had of what was going on was from Amadou Deme, who was Dallaire's intelligence officer. And he, Deme, doesn't think that it was a mystery at all. When he talks about it, he says everybody knew that the RPF was doing these assassinations and these grenade attacks. But can you talk a bit about why the Hutus were actually fleeing from the north? Well, what the RPF was doing to make them flee?
1: Uh, Before the genocide, yeah. The RPF was um, uh, firing on uh, basically killing uh, them in their villages, initially launching uh, savage raids. Then um, uh, in order to gain territory, uh, there were all kinds of um, tactics used. They would uh, not only kill people, but they, there, there was some burning of their homes, um, just pushing Hutus out of their, uh, their villages. And by the time, uh, as the war uh, wore on, you had these large displacement camps and the RPF uh, at that point started to uh, unleash uh, they, they you know, then they started to fire on the camps, if you can imagine. And so the camps progressively, if you could see this, the camps progressively would have to move. And by 1993, there were a million people in these camps. And I interviewed a lot of uh, Hutus on that invasion war. Um, and there were all kinds of stories um and some of them were so graphic and and disturbing but one of the priests that I met in Italy had uh lived in Rwanda's north for years before the invasion war and he lived during uh, the invasion war and he was he was in these camps a lot of the time or around them. And he was uh, seeing the level of suffering uh, in some of these camps. And he he said it was biblical. Uh, Children had no access to food. Um, uh, The uh, sanitation was dire. Uh, It was very dangerous. Um, There was you know there were rampant diseases uh there were orphanages uh set up in the camps and then the the uh those uh hospitals makeshift hospitals would be bombed and and fired on then they'd have to move again um uh an MSF worker and nurse uh, uh who I uh talked to said that he was in uh was trying to provide aid with MSF teams. And he said the, the kids, you know, the, the conditions, social conditions, but also the sanitation conditions and, and food insecurity was so uh, horrific that some of the men started getting drunk on, you know, uh, all, all sorts of, of, of beverages and the kids were, you know, Playing in, in, uh, in very unsanitary conditions. So it was, it was, um, so, uh, dire that these, these camps were uh, places where, uh, some youth started to, uh, form groups and radicalize. There was a lot of anti Tutsi sentiment in these groups, but there was, you know, this was not as, as uh, Prunier might describe, about uh, super, you know superstition or being afraid of Tutsis of the RPF. This was about a war, and people were afraid uh, and trying to survive and living uh, in 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 under terrible conditions and uh, being taken prisoner essentially in in their own uh, in their own homeland.
0: If you, if you understand a little bit about civil wars or, or war situations, people flee massacres. And there, there's a, there was a very specific strategy of getting people to flee through massacres in order to clear these territories. And, and it was, it was very effective. Kagame was very Mm -hmm. good at it. So presenting it after the fact as a mystery is, is really, uh, it's kind of offensive. So we're getting close to 1994. (laughs) And there is still this problem that Kagame has, which is that the United Nations and the French won't really allow a, a complete invasion when the while these Arusha Accords and these peace accords are in place, and while there is the possibility of a democratic solution, Habyarimana, the president of Rwanda, most people think would have won a democratic election even in nineteen ninety four. So this presents a problem. That I guess people that you talked to in the RPF told you about how Kagame planned to solve this problem, namely through the assassination of Habyarimana. So can you talk a bit about how you know? Because there's a story that Habyarimana was assassinated by hardliners within the Rwandan government, but you have. A- amassed a lot of evidence, and in fact, there's there's a lot of evidence that the tribunals have that indicates that it was it was Kagame. And uh can you just yeah can we get can we talk about the assassination? Yeah, of I Lame? mean,
1: you mentioned it briefly. That I think people who looked at this very clearly understood that even though the RPF had negotiated a really good deal uh, under Arusha for uh, sharing power controlling half of the military in, in power sharing government, they knew uh, fundamentally that down the road when elections were held, they the RPF would not be able to hold on to power. And that's what it wanted. I mean, power at all costs. So the other aspect of this that I raise in, in my book is that Because of, and we've just talked about the war crimes, um, the ethnic cleansing uh, to achieve territory that the RPF engaged in, the war crimes that the RPF had committed during the invasion war, that whole area would have been opened up to internationals, um, eventually in 1994 when the original was applied and, and a broad-based government was actually implemented. And I think, you know, the Javier uh, Armana government and people within that government had been documented, documenting, rather, the, the loss of life. And they, they had come up with figures, they were coming up with figures of 30,000, uh, and that's probably conservative of people who had been killed during the invasion war in the north. And so... Kagame stood to, um, be tried for those crimes during the invasion war. So we have two reasons. They would not be able to hold on to power in, in any way, uh, post Arusha. Uh, they would not do well in elections because of their minority status and reputation, and possibly the senior commanders, including Kagame, would be tried for war crimes. So we go back to how are they going to resolve this? And so the analysis that I have is from a number of people, but also documents. I mean, there are documents about who is assa- documentation that shows the most compelling evidence regarding the uh, assassination of Javier Ramana come from two sources. The the first source is 2006, the indictment by the French judge Jean-Louis Brigueur. And he indicted um, several uh, RPF commanders uh, based on uh, a fair amount of testimony by former RPF informants, um, which uh, showed that Kagame had uh, assembled... Uh, uh, had had discussed in a number of meetings it, uh, their plan to assassinate the Hutu president. Then they assembled uh, a, a team uh, to uh, handle missiles. Uh, the RPF already had access to Soviet-made missiles that Uganda had purchased in the late 1980s. And so they had a number of these missiles. And um, also uh, and then the missile members that uh apparently got together uh at the beginning of April 1994 those names were given to Brigère and so uh with a rundown of the area uh in Kigali where they uh, launch those missiles. So we had um, a, a clear scenario, a, a compelling evidence from him in 2006. And when I got a hold of some confidential documents from the UN, uh, from the special investigations unit, uh, which had uh, collected testimony from a number of RPF informants, basically I found the same uh, scenario, the same a preparatory meetings being held by Niamwasa uh, and Kagame and a number of others uh, the uh training of a missile team uh, the same names that Briere mentions are basically in the document that i uh accessed and then the same scenario Masaka the area uh uh of a, you know choosing a farm in Masaka an area of Kigali to launch the missiles so uh, this is a tremendously interesting corrobor- uh, corroborating evidence now there was also uh at some point a technical ballistic and acoustic report that was released uh uh by a judge uh named Marc Trevedic, uh and um that uh provided uh, indications that it, the uh, missiles that were used to kill Javier Aramana to uh, bring down his plane were probably not fired from Masaka. And so this shed, shed doubt on... Uh, whether uh, Kagame would be, have been responsible and, and he indicated or people interpreted the results from those, uh, those reports, their technical reports as the Hutus being uh, the blame uh, for the downing, but I think the most interesting evidence, and then there were holes in in those reports, and a lot of people criticize the expertise uh, uh, of those reports, but I think the most corroborating evidence uh, at the u n uh, uh, and from the initial inquiry. Um, show that Kagame's uh, forces brought down the plane, and most of the guys who are in exile who used to be uh, with Kagame and the army will tell you there's absolutely no doubt that they were responsible for killing Javier Armana.
0: Yeah I read I read this account in uh, Abdul Ruzi Biza's book because uh, he also kind of puts that all together so I the, now the the Downing of the plane, the assassination of Habyarimana, and also uh, Cyprien Ntaryamira, the the president of Burundi, uh, and uh, and several many other people from from the government uh, of Rwanda. Uh, that happens on April sixth, and that actually is the precipitating event for the Rwandan genocide. Now, people. Call anyone who criticizes Kagame is instantly called a genocide denier or genocide divisionist or whatever. And I just want to get it out of the way that neither you nor I deny the genocide in any way. Uh, There, the genocide was, uh, you know, done by you know Hutu militias. They they massacred Tutsi interior Tutsi at roadblocks, in villages, uh, and in Kigali itself. So um, I just wanted to kind of say that and and we can kind of now just get into what happened um, after the April 6th uh, assassination, during which um, the so-called genocider, these militias, were committing massacres against Tutsi civilians, while at the same time the RPF now is completing its invasion and in the process is also massacring Hutu civilians on a scale that I think prior to your book uh, was only known to very few people. And now that your book is out, will be known to still probably few people, but hopefully more people. So can, just do you want to just talk about those dynamics of like what was going on with the genocide and with the RPF massacres at the same time?
1: Well, just briefly, uh, just before the, uh, the plane uh, was brought down just before the plane attack. We have a RPF having infiltrated Rwanda completely. So we have several hundred uh, RPF cells, and these are just, uh, you know, a cell could be A group of people working on a a university campus or people being RPF members or supporting the RPF in residential uh, homes throughout Rwanda. But we had several hundred RPF cells uh, throughout Rwanda. We also have uh, technicians or RPF commandos having infiltrated Hutu militia. So what we have is a Hutu militia uh, like the Interahamwe was the youth wing of uh, the MRND the ruling party um and the Hutu militias were responsible for the vast majority of violence against Tutsis during the genocide now the RPF had infiltrated these uh groups and so when the uh, genocide started against the Tutsi um we have some of those uh, those commandos assisting directly in killing Tutsis at roadblocks.
0: And partly, I, I partly I just want to go back to that point that we made earlier, which is that the Ugandan anglophone kind of Kagame group doesn't necessarily identify that strongly with the with the interior Tutsis that stayed in Rwanda that grew up in Rwanda were francophones and are thought of by Kagame in some sense as collaborators with, with the Hutus. So there's an element of, they don't even really identify very strongly with the, with the people that were killed in the genocide.
1: No, that's right. And uh, they they're, to some extent, depending on the members, there was com- contempt and mistrust of interior Tutsis by the Ugandan wing, okay? And so uh, Tutsis, uh, as far as the RPF, was concerned, the hardliners of the Rwanda Patriotic Front, um, it was all right to sacrifice uh, interior Tutsis for the greater gain, the greater gain being power, and eventually uh, reclaiming or taking back uh, territory in order to resettle uh, uh, Tutsis who had been forced into exile uh over the last you know decade several decades so uh, we have um tutsis as the genocide war on being used as uh stock and trade as fodder because they were the killing of tutsis enabled um the rpf to solidify its moral authority you see uh, because we had kagame leading a uh, a tutsi army uh against forces um as it as it became you know in the in the its propaganda war leading uh a, a, a war waging a battle against Hutu genocide. and so uh the Hutus, the hardline elements namely the I mean you have the Hutu militia and hardline elements uh of the state, especially on a local level, killing Tutsis and Kagame being the commander of the tutsi forces he became uh the person seen as saving the tutsis even as he was of course uh sacrificing them and so um his his people of the rpa became associated with uh, you know uh, use that victimhood to solidify and the more tutsis who died uh it it, it seemed that it, it um Paved the way for him to um, increase this kind of authority, and and it brought him, uh, you know, it, it enabled him that special status. So, and, what, yeah. I mean, there was resistance, of course, to killing Tutsis in a number of areas, and the genocide against Tutsis started uh, at different times over that three months um, in, in different zones. But at the same time, we have uh, the RPA already holding, uh, already controlling most of the north and very quickly going down the eastern side of the country, gaining territory, seizing territory very fast. So behind the front, in the rear areas, they started killing, uh, with, uh, an incredible level of organization and zeal. They started killing Tutsi peasants. Uh they they targeted uh Hutu community leaders uh, and they killed peasants uh in their homes but they often uh invited them to meetings, would gun them down, uh kill them or put them on buses and take them to uh the eastern park of Akagera. So they were committing a very well organized, orchestrated Uh, effective uh, uh, genocide against the Hutus in those areas that were quickly seized. So going from north down the eastern side, then going down in the south and then coming back up. And in every area that they captured in the rear, they would um, kill Hutus and they did so massively.
0: And again, this was documented shortly after the, the war and the genocide by Robert Gersony, was consulting, I think, for the UN. Um, and he wrote a report where he estimated, uh, what was it? 10,000 people were being, again, conservatively estimated at something like 10,000 a month for each month. So probably 30 or 40,000 people, um, that were being killed in this way by uh, being called to meet mass meetings and then murdered at the meetings, uh, Hutus that were being murdered uh, at these meetings. Um, they were, they were uh, fired, you know, open fired upon uh, in their villages and, and, uh, and just massacred also. The characteristic tool that we think of for the genocide is the machete, you know, killing somebody at a, with a machete at a roadblock but they, uh, the RPF, as you describe in your book, had this specific tool, the uh, agafuni, I think it was called, which is a sharp hoe that they used to to bash people's skulls in. So they even had their own kind of characteristic symbolic weapon, and and they would tie people up in this specific way, which also they did in Uganda, and you can read about it in Epstein's book. Um, so there are there are these there's these specific kind of Patterns of atrocity that are characteristic of both, uh, you know, I don't to use that language, both sides uh, in uh, during this during these these three. Yeah, months. It's
1: depraved and st- sadistic, uh, inflicting the maximum amount of pain on the enemy. Uh, yeah,
0: and trauma. Yeah, and like long term trauma to get people to to flee, to get people to be passive, uh, to get people to kind of like submit to whatever the ruling party wants after the, after the massacre is over.
1: Yeah. I mean, yes, of course. And you mentioned Gersony and his report came, uh, quickly on the heels of the genocide. Um, but he only actually went into one third of Rwanda's communes. So, uh, you know, the, the, the figures, the estimates of the numbers killed were obviously, um, incomplete, uh, conservative, but incomplete. And, uh, and, yeah, uh,
0: yeah, and when, I, I I did want to mention just uh, Stephen Smith for Liberation talked about piecing together lists with Seth Sendashanga and and their estimate was about 150 Kagame's forces killed about 150,000 people during those hundred days.
1: Well, yeah, and it's it's not clear to me how how they come up with it's very hard to to get estimates uh, in Kagame's Rwanda of how many people were killed um and there's a whole other story to that because they have changed um uh, administrative districts and um the names of a lot of uh the communes um and now they have uh you know built Rwanda or changed administrative borders and they have provinces instead of uh, prefectures but um if you look at Gersney's findings um you know, it clearly it was the beginning of something very important and those findings were uh, buried. Uh, he spoke in a verbal briefing of a genocide uh, perpetrated by the RPF against Hutus. Um, and he detailed uh, in his field notes uh, some of the tactics uh, and he collected a lot, a fair amount of testimony. Now, the UN, uh, it, stated uh in one of the cables that I have at, at that you, you can actually see on the internet that it was in uh damage control mode um and uh, a number of people said we we don't really uh believe that this happened and so they buried it um and at the same time though there was another cable it's not as if the United nations uh and embassies western embassies did not know what was going on in May. Uh, In the eastern edge, uh, southern edge of Rwanda, uh, the middle of May, we had a UN protection uh, report cable uh, uh, that was released or passed around, uh, uh, collected by Refugees International, showing testimony of Hutus fleeing RPF zones and talking about the wholesale slaughter of their people, people being killed in their homes or put on buses and disappearing, uh, people uh, being dumped in the Akagera River. And so that was this was information and testimony and evidence that was known uh, during the genocide that the UN buried as well. Uh, and they knew that the RPF was uh, committing these atrocities because it was in complete control of that area at the end of April.
0: So just to get briefly back to the strategy, I just wanted to point out as well, that which what you, what, what you talk about in your book, repeatedly, repeatedly, Uh, The Rwandan police. So not all of the Rwandan army or police were on side with with massacring the Tutsis with the with the anti-Tutsi genocide. Uh, They were begging uh, you, the U.N. and through the U.N. Kagame for local ceasefires so that they could stop the militias and put them down. Um, suppress them and stop the civilian massacres uh, and Kagame repeatedly refused to do that because Kagame was winning so there was uh there were repeated attempts on the one side by the Rwandans and then again when when the proposal for uh, United Nations uh, UNAMIR 2 uh, the proposal for uh, for a UN force to try to stop uh, the massacres. Uh, Kagame again said, if any such force comes, the RPF will fight it. Uh, all the people that could have been killed have been killed. And all you would be protecting is the genocidere, And we will not stand for that. Um, again, because militarily, such a force would have preserved some kind of uh, power sharing, whereas Kagame knew that militarily he could take the whole thing.
1: Well, that's right. I mean... He, uh, he he didn't want. First of all, he didn't want anyone to know what his troops were doing in areas uh, that he controlled, and so so non-intervention was central to his plan. And and you know you mentioned he threatened the United Nations, said, "Do not deploy. Do not get in our way. We will shoot at you." So I mean, the propaganda later, he'll 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 constantly say that the the international community abandoned Rwanda during its darkest hour. Well, he actually was waging a war against Rwanda. He'd killed the uh, president um, and his troops were starting to kill uh, civilians and the Tutsis were being sacrificed and he wanted everyone to get out so that he could, um, you know, seize power, uh, and, and gain territorial, um, make territorial gains. So, uh, yeah, that, that was, that was part, part of the plan. And, um, I think the UN was, uh, uh, was there to oblige what we saw is the United States during that time, actively working at the level of the security council to not intervene. Uh, and, uh, Bill Clinton in later years has said, said, He didn't know the extent of the killing and he he was sorry that the United States uh, did not intervene and did not save lives. Well, you know, of course he knew what was going on. They had the satellite technology. um, They were getting reports of the killings and uh, the RPF did not want uh, the U.S. or the U.N. to uh, become involved.
0: Uh, Kagame takes power. July 1994, uh the Rwandan army's finally defeated the genocide, the 100 days of the genocide are over. Probably in the genocide between half a million and a million Tutsis were killed. Again, very difficult to to estimate, but those are the those are the ranges. Um and then uh there's this the French intervention which uh during which a chunk of Rwanda uh, was occupied by French forces. And then there was this kind of negotiation where Kagame, again, threatened <laughs> the French. Um, and uh, and basically the United States stepped in to kind of see the French off. Um, in the meantime, what, one to two million uh, Hutus, again, fleeing through some, most authors say it was just some complete mystery why they all fled, because they just heard bad stories about the RPF. But in fact, they were fleeing, uh, the, the threat of massacres and the, and the many massacres mm-hmm. that the RPF had committed. And they fled into Zaire. And so now, um, there's the former turquoise zone in Zaire from late 1994 on, which is again now a whole other set of atrocities on an even bigger scale uh is kagame starts to do so if you want to kind of pick it up from there
1: well the um you know there was in june when the french arrived uh, in rwanda they created that safe haven zone um and um kagame was uh not happy that the French would be intervening. Now, he has since accused the French of being complicit in the genocide.
0: Yes, and there's a series in Le Monde Diplomatique, I guess you've read, kind of revisiting Operation Turquoise, right?
1: And so uh, also the American media, in particular and academics, uh, you know, in their echo chamber, repeated a lot of what the RPF initially accused uh, the French of, which is, allowing a safe haven and allowing, uh, protecting armed Hutu elements and protecting them and allowing them to get away into Zaire and then being active in the camps So uh, in Zaire afterwards. We have that going on now. A lot of Tutsis that did survive the genocide have told me that the French saved them, that they owe their lives to the French, Operation Turquoise. And also Hutus were saved by Opération Turquoise. And after the genocide, uh, François Mitterrand, who was president, talked about a double genocide. So the French have, uh, I'm actually for them opening up their archives. Get, get an idea. But one of the things the French have said or people who were involved in Operation Turquoise said, if we open up our archives, then let the Americans do that too and the Canadians. So let's just get everybody's uh, agreement to, to open up. The cables, the intelligence briefings, and what we know was happening. And I actually think that the French uh, have not released their archives because they prefer to maintain uh, close ties with the Americans. They don't want to show what was really going on. So anyhow, François Mitterrand says there was a double genocide, a number of Tutsis, but not enough uh were uh protected and, and saved under Operation Turquoise, which really didn't get going until sometime in June. So there had been a lot of Tutsis already killed by then um, and Hutus as well. But there this was some kind of intervention. So uh then as we say we you, you mentioned all these Hutus en masse A number of them, at least 1.2, ended up in Zaire. There were other uh, Hutus who ended up in other countries on the eastern border. But the Hutu refugee camps became problematic for a number of reasons. There were armed Hutu elements in those camps. The extent of their organization and, you know, how active they were is an open question. I've uh, spoken to aid workers who were in those camps, especially in Bukavu, and she said she did not see any real organization of armed elements in Bukavu. Now, Goma in Mugungu, I think there were probably more organization of armed elements there, but clearly all the refugees I spoke to in Congo and then in later years told me they were not held hostage by Hutu armed elements. That was, you know, propaganda came from the U.S., They, the RPF. They stayed in those camps in Zaire because they were survivors of, of the attacks during the genocide by RPF forces. And they were afraid of being finished off if they went home. And what had happened is the RPF was luring, and the UNHCR was trying to get them to go home. The RPF was luring people to go back home. And there were waves of Hutus from those camps that went back from 1994 onward. And uh, there were uh, considerable authentic reports that were coming back to Hutus in those camps in Congo, that the Hutus that returned disappeared, were disappearing, especially the men. In 1996 uh, and even before uh, the RPF, they were killing systematically young Hutu men. And in some cases, they were putting them in, they call them containers, but they were just big, big uh, trucks and packing them in trucks, connecting pipes to the exhaust pipe, and then piping in carbon monoxide into yep. these trucks. And these men would die of of carbon monoxide poisoning. These are reminiscent of the gas vans that the Nazis used yep. uh, during yep. World War II yep. uh, against the Jews. And, you know, it recalls those tactics that, that the RPF used against Hutu men, young men and older men. That's not the first time the RPF used Nazi tactics. I mean, I described the mobile forces that the RPF used against Hutu civilians uh, behind the front, and those were reminiscent of like the Einsatzgruppen uh, during World War II, the Nazis as they were uh, going through for, uh, the Soviet Union um the Baltic states uh, and Ukraine and Poland and how they were killing the Jews in Roma. I mean, it's very, very scary. I,
0: I just wanted to mention too, that, you know, the international criminal tribunal for Rwanda starts to get going in the mid to late nineties. One of the investigators uh, presents the the presiding, uh, pro, you know, the chief prosecutor is uh, Louise Arbour initially, right? Who's a Canadian judge now, or a retired Canadian judge, and he presents her with a dossier, this story is in your book, he presents her with a dossier of evidence suggesting that Kagame shot down the plane and so on, and uh, at first she's really excited about it, and then when he sees her, she kind of blows him off and says, no, we're not doing that. The, our our remit begins the day after the plane was shut down.
1: That's right. Yes. Uh, she was actually the second prosecutor of the tribunal after Richard Goldstone. But in 1997, Michael Horrigan, who is one of the investigators, came to her with very interesting, intriguing ev- evidence from a few uh, former in- RPF soldiers uh, and informants that r p f had commandos, and they were responsible for shooting down Javier arma plane and and you know he he points out that um under no time uh, at any point before were was he ever told by Goldstone or uh yeah. madame Abour, Abour that he was not supposed to investigate the, the plane attack. And he, he thought he was supposed to do that. And in fact, the uh, mandate of the tribunal clearly stipulates under Article 4 that the tribunal was supposed to investigate acts of terrorism and the assassination of Javier uh and his Burundian counterpart constituted an act of terrorism. And so he thought this was within the mandate and he believed uh, so he brought the initial evidence to her within a few days. He uh, then they organized meetings and she completely changed uh, her tune. Uh, she did a complete 180 uh, mm-hmm. and she said, we're we're not investigating this. And she has argued since that um, it was not within the mandate. She did not have jurisdiction, but legally she did. But she,
0: And she also told Carol off in that book uh, about her and Delaire and uh, Lou McCain Kenzie, I guess, she told Carol off that we couldn't investigate the RPF because they would have killed all our witnesses. I mean, she, uh, it's, it's kind of amazing. She's making these legal arguments on the one hand uh, and simultaneously admitting the kind of raw power elements of the, of the whole tribunal on the other. Uh,
1: what Carol Off reveals is very, very interesting because this is true. I think they, there were very serious Risks against not only the informants testifying to the tribunal, but also the investigators' security risks that they faced. And it was, uh, it was impossible. She's right. It was impossible to investigate the crimes, the Rwanda patriotic Front, uh, and Kagame himself while in Rwanda. But I mean, that's not enough. You can't just say that. I yeah. mean, like,
0: we're not going to uh, investigate these crimes because it's hard. Okay. I thought you were yeah, in a tribunal. It,
1: it doesn't, yeah. It doesn't hold, hold water. Um, and the issue is that, I mean, as soon as Del Ponte, uh, her successor, Carla Del Ponte, uh, swiss uh woman yeah in um, her
0: book too there's a scene in her book where she goes to see kagame and he tells her you i don't want you to do this anymore and she sort of backs down i mean she admits it in her own book
1: the issue is that okay we you can we can investigate crimes while in kagame's rwanda but we'll bring our teams we'll we'll set up the the strategy differently and we'll interview informants who have fled yeah. so i mean that's what she did. And she collected in, in her early years, over 2001, 2002, a, a, a substantial amount of prima facie evidence. And she, unfortunately for her, she announced to Kagame yeah. that she would have indictments ready in, in a year. And he said, by hell, you won't. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it became a power struggle. Instead of getting her house in order, I think she, she announced, you know, basically what she was going to do. And then there was some backpedaling. She needed his cooperation to, um, get, uh, some, uh, suspects who were uh, Hutu, Hutu genocide suspects, she needed them transferred and she needed cooperation of Kagame to move uh, the investigations against Hutu hardliners ahead. The UN needed to show results, right? A lot of this is political, right? You need to try... Uh, to prosecute the most uh, serious crimes they wanted to show results at the tribunal they needed to they needed to prosecute uh, Hutu suspects for committing genocide against Huts- Tutsis so there was that uh, element to it, and also um, basically at the same time when del ponte said she wanted to go ahead and she had this evidence. United States decided, no, we're not going to let her go ahead. They had her removed. And she has described this in her book. I have provided a document in my book to show that the US ambassador for war crimes at the time, Pierre Prosper, did a deal. He struck a deal. And he basically said, um, you know, there are not going to be any international prosecutions. The ICTR will hand over its evidence of RPF crimes to the Rwandan government. So, can you imagine? If yeah. It was handing over. It wanted to what? hand over to the Rwandan justice ministry of justice the evidence of RPF crimes. So We're that is.
0: We're handing the, the evidence of crimes in the hen house over to the Fox for for investigation.
1: Yes, it's let, let the killers investigate themselves. He, uh, when I spoke to him, he said, oh, no, that's not a de facto deal that I uh, negotiated. It was part of some kind of complementary strategy. I mean, he... He spun it as that.
0: But he didn't have any jurisdiction to make that deal. You make that clear in your book. There was no, there's no pieces for him to do that. And yeah. people
1: who had worked at the office of the prosecutor at the tribunal said it was an illegal deal. He had no authority to do it. But because Carla Del Ponte was not signing off on that deal, that proposal. She was, in her mind, and according to many people at the tribunal, removed. Now, he says, no, she wasn't removed because of that. She was problematic even at the Yugoslav tribunal. But they certainly let her continue to be prosecutor at the Yugoslav tribunal. So uh, clearly she was a, a, an obstacle. She was removed. The The fact of the matter is, under Hassan Jalo, who succeeded her, Uh, as uh, chief prosecutor of the tribunal, no indictments were ever uh, issued. No prosecutions were ever carried out against Kagame and his commanders.
0: And in fact, some of the some of the other prosecutions stalled, right? Because uh, you know, some of the high profile ones would would probably have involved opening up that file on the assassination of Iman. I was just, I'm just the end of Andre yes. Gishawa's book kind of talks about this a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. So um, it was like the United States wanted to clear the deck, but they certainly wanted didn't want to open up that can of worms. And so you, you saw at the end of 2015 when the tribunal wrapped up and there's only residual mechanism dealing with the remaining cases, more than 60 cases convictions at the ICTR were uh, against Tutus somehow linked to the former regime. Non, none were Tutsis linked to uh, the RPF.
0: So that's international justice, all these cover-ups. And then meanwhile, within Rwanda, they built these unbelievable prison system that jailed hundreds of thousands of Hutus. Ten, uh, more than 10,000 of them died because of the horrific conditions. There's a book, I uh, can't remember the, uh, the author, but the, someone went into these prisons and they're, they're, the scenes they describe are, you know, people are just walking around all day. There's literally nowhere to sit or stand the bunk the bunk beds are stacked in this way there are some people who have to walk all night long because they call themselves the night walkers because they literally have no place to stop and sleep and and so that and then they had this gachacha process right where people tell their truth Mm -hmm. and uh and are so there's the there was like an infrastructure essentially for assuming that every single hutu was guilty which has mm-hmm. kind of ad- been adopted in the Western media too. Like, if you say Hutu, the next word association is genocidaire, probably in, in most of the West. So it's like an entire group of millions of people that have been assumed guilty. Uh, including by like some of the best organizations out there, like Médecins Sans Frontieres, kind of adopts this line, I'd say. And so within Rwanda, there's there's this going on, and you you've described a little bit. You know, we both read Anjan Sundaram's book too about the kind of place Rwanda is now. Um, do you want to just talk a, a little bit about like post genocide Rwanda? Um,
1: yeah, Anjan's book is uh, great in in showing the level of fear and silence. Yeah. Uh, And the 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 way in which people are frozen in that country and can't talk about what's really going on. Yeah, I think the prisons were. I mean, they're so the conditions were so inhumane, uh, difficult, uh, not only to describe but to even fathom um, how people lived and died in those prisons, the overpacked prisons, because it was. I mean, we saw glimpses of the conditions. Uh, probably the best voices trying to tell the rest of the world what was going on. Unfortunately, like André Sibomana, he died. He was um, a human rights activist and a journalist, and he was in Guitarama and he was going into those prisons and um, speaking with prisoners and uh, and trying to sound the alarm about... What the RPF was doing after the genocide, what it had done even during, and he was collecting testimony and lists of names, and he was doing this with the prisoners and doing it secretly uh, among civilians in Guitarama. I mean, he died. So it seems like so many voices and and so many opportunities to shed light on 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 some of these crimes were were, were silenced, and so this was part of, I think. K- Kagame's strategy I mean theater and 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 um, also whipping up a hot genocidal process you know he was part of the initial genocidal process fueling it fueled it but then after the genocide, Look at these massive, masses yeah. of guilty people. This guilty is what masses. we're dealing with. Help us. So it actually fed into um, all yeah. the the international suspicion of, of Hutus as an ethnic group. It also uh, it, uh, helped solidify Kagame's impunity because he received a lot of international support to rebuild Rwanda
0: yeah. yeah, and, and his, his argument is basically, if you don't support me to do all this, then then I'm just holding the gates against another genocide. These people are waiting to kill us all again.
1: Yes, and the Gachacha ge- was instrumental in, I mean, they became a, not only a way to settle scores, but also bribe people, coerce people into giving testimony. So you have, you know, uh, a lot of uh, Tutsis who legitimately were telling their stories, so there's a whole Portion of of people who are telling their their stories about what they experienced at the hands of like intrahamway or, or or uh neighbors but i mean there was a, a, they got consumed and and you know it was used as well to um fabricate in some cases uh uh stories against uh the RPF's political opponents and in nowhere in, 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 no, there was no evidence at all in the Gachacha proceedings that people, uh, who civilians were allowed to, um, event, uh, and reveal what they had gone through during the genocide and, and, and their family members who had been killed in areas under RPF control. So that, um, that process. Yeah. In was, fact,
0: uh, you know, Hutu politics, Victoire in is the famous case of someone who mentioned the Hutus killed during the genocide and is in jail for it, literally in jail for saying that.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, he mentions that when she returned from Holland to Rwanda to start to organize Mm -hmm. politically, she uh, went to a memorial and and stated um, her uh, respect and need to pay homage to Tutsi victims of the genocide, but also that you know, there needed to be recognition of Hutu's killed as well. And which was an open statement, uh, you know, a very open-minded, uh, politically progressive. But she uh, was quickly, uh, you know, targeted and uh, arrested and then accused of genocide denial. And um, and she then faced charges of terrorism.
0: Here's another really dastardly thing that the West did. There were all these refugees in the Congo, in the Congo. And Kagame uh, basically made this decision to hunt them down, and you know the phrase "hunting hunting them down like rabbits." Prunye uses this phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Beatrice Umutezi wrote this book "Fuir ou Mourir en Zaïre." She that's a harrowing and incredible account. You know, another one of those books that prior to your book was was one of the most important ones uh, on this topic. Mm-hmm. The U.S. had these satellite photos where they showed these hundreds of thousands of refugees one day. And then once, I guess, the decision to hunt them down was made, the U.S. sort of said, oh, no, that never happened. There's there's only a few tens of thousands of refugees. And I think the Oxfam worker said something like, you have airbrushed hundreds of thousands of people from history and the airbrushing of people from these photos actually preceded their their physical destruction their their mass murder in Zaire from uh, these same kinds of death squads that were hunting the Hutus down in in Rwanda you know you talk about that a bit uh, quite a bit in your book the the Congo side of the war which was going on at the same time as the tribunal and at the same time as uh, as these um the jailings and, and so on within Rwanda.
1: All of that was happening. It was a very um, explosive time. And, you know, the UNHCR and Oxfam, Nicholas Stockton uh, had access to the photogametry and they'd seen the visuals, which are representations of all the the, the satellite uh, photos of these masses of people. It looked like about 500,000 people were in groups that that had been pushed further west were being pushed further west the same time we have the Americans standing up and and uh and also uh, Maurice standing who was in charge of, of assessing refugee numbers and determining whether a multinational uh, uh, force would be deployed under Canada's leadership in Eastern Zaire to protect these people. And he came out with a report which was astonishing, saying he can't really find very many people. Um, it's very difficult, there's only a certain number, and we think uh, most of those are former genocidaire and armed to two elements in their families. And they're, therefore, uh, you know, they would not want to go home anyhow. So we don't really see a need for this force. And so there's tremendous amount of uh, political positioning and obfuscation, denial of, of what was going on in the ground. Stephen Smith, as a journalist, was there in, uh, you know, he was overhead looking at helicopters. He was appalled when Mariusz Baril gave his press conference and released these findings. And the uh, Canadians, uh, under the pressure from the United States, backed down from protecting these people. And uh, we saw what happened in later months. Hundreds of thousands of people, uh, Hutu refugees, were slaughtered. And the U.S. knew what was going on, at, even at the level of the State Department, um, a human rights um, uh, official at the who was charged and expected to look at what was happening in the ground was told to not talk about it, was told to look the other way. and the United States certainly knew what was going on as it was a, a, a occurring and they gave the green light for Kagame anyhow to proceed. With the overthrow uh, of Mabutu Sese Seko, so uh, for you know to achieve a greater po- geopolitical objective.
0: And so, it, you know, just to kind of bring it to the present, they've 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 still got a degree of control over Eastern Congo. Rwanda does and continues to profit from minerals, although not like they did uh, probably a decade ago, you know, we've described the situation within Rwanda. And then they also have their assassination squads who are continuing to hunt down dissidents, take people from Uganda, but also Kenya, South Africa, people have been murdered. Um, even in Europe, there have been, uh, threats in Canada, there have been threats. The, one of the first cracks that I saw in this 2014, there was a BBC documentary that talked a little bit about what Kagame had done in the, and the Rwandan, um, civil war. And that was met with a fairly quick, uh, kind of, what do you call it? Organized backlash by a lot of the Rwanda writers and experts who were really close to Kagame. And so I'm wondering if you see the the debate, like if you see any cracks, uh, you know, your your book at least has has made some headway here in Canada. Where do you see the debate, kind of uh, the state of the debate right now, and the state of the discussion?
1: You know, that's a very good question. It's hard hard for me to predict. All I know is that there's been really no. Um, strong official reaction to my book about what I've revealed. My book concludes that the RPF committed genocide against Hutus, fueled the genocide against Tutsis, and also triggered the genocide by uh, killing Javier Now Now, um, what I've seen in the last several weeks since my book has been released is a lot of people coming forward, uh, Rwandans and Congolese, to say yes this is true we need to talk about it we need to group together and reveal more of these stories so it's like there's a lid that's you know taken off and and there's um you know my book only it collects a number of things that were already uh available to people and you know a lot uh so there's some aspects of my book that you, you just read and, and it reaffirmed what you already knew. But my book amplifies the voices of people who have been victimized or who know what happened uh, in RPF ranks because they were part of
0: For me, Judy, this your book is just so refreshing because, you know, as much as I'm like putting together pieces from this and that source... To be able to hear somebody to, to and and to see it all kind of put together in this way, it was just it's just incredibly validating. It makes me feel like I'm less disconnected from reality, and like okay, there's somebody out there who you know who knows this story that I can talk about, you know that I can talk about this with. For you know, for, so it was it's personally for me, it was. It it really made made a difference uh, in my life, so I just wanted to tell you that. And uh, and so I'm I'm sure that for Rwandans who actually face life or death consequences for you know thinking about this or trying to talk about it, it's it must be incredibly, incredibly well. Validating. Thank you so
1: much, and I have received very good, um, uh, you know, a, a tremendous amount of support from Rwandans worldwide, people who have lost, uh, you know, their loved ones, but also a lot of Tutsis and, and people who broke with the regime um, who have lived in fear as well because they've been targeted by Kagame. So it's it's been tremendously uh, rewarding. Like I don't know how this is going to unra- uh, un- unfold, but I think um, what we're seeing is that people who have sought asylum and whose cases are have been maybe rejected or immigration uh, authorities have have thought to possibly deport them and i think what we're going to see is maybe governments uh t- examining more closely uh these cases so at the very least Rwandan refugees worldwide will be taken uh more seriously and i i think uh that's a very good thing
0: I, so I've just, I've made my own kind of crude calculations, uh, about the numbers of deaths. So I kind of, uh, according to my numbers, I, I think that the Hutu militias probably killed between half a million and a million. Kagame's forces killed you know, based on Gersony 40 to 60,000 in the same period during those hundred days, Kagame then went on to kill 150,000 people in the following year and another three to 400,000 in Zaire. So if you think of the Congo war and the six, the 1996, seven Congo war and the civil war in Rwanda together, the whole event probably took between one and a half to 2 million lives. And, uh,
1: Well, it's very hard to know, but I mean, uh, uh, what uh, I bring to the table is looking at the dynamics of RPF violence in their uh, zones, they control. We're looking at somewhere between 500 and 1 million people dying, uh, Hutus principally dying at the hands of the RPF uh, during the genocide and in the months after. So possibly up to a million. Teo Rudasingwa, who was the head of the RPF Secretariat, says probably uh, upwards of a million people Hutus died, um, were killed by the RPF uh, over the course of three months during the genocide, but also in the months after. That's an incredible amount. And uh, uh, an investigator at the tribunal told me at least five hundred thousand. So we're dealing with numbers that are really high. Then, of course, he went after several he. Possibly killed, his troops killed several hundred, at least 200,000 or more in Congo later. Um, and then the war unleashed over several years uh, many victims, uh, resulted in many victims through not only violence but war related causes. So several million people died. So the legacy of Paul Kagame, the number of victims uh due to uh his war- succession of wars is is so high that it it's it's hard to even fathom i mean when he leaves power you know some none of us live forever um we will only begin to be able to uh investigate uh the numbers and and where uh these people were from and how they disappeared uh is extinguished but um clearly that has to be do- be done. It's, it's just, it's just so appalling, devastating.
0: You know, I wanted to say that in terms of like the importance of the issue, the journalistic work that you did, the, the way you put it together and the way that you wrote it, I think, you know, I think you should get a Pulitzer for this book. And I, you know what, if Kendrick Lamar can get a, Pul- you know, it's, uh, it's not entirely out of the, out of the question, right? Like it's, it's not an entirely closed, uh, System, But I, I really I really think this is a, a, a model for for what a journalist can do and should do. And um, I, can, I really can't praise this enough. So thank you so much again for talking to me um and coming on the show and for doing this thank you just it was a real
1: pleasure talking to you i know you've really researched this so much over the years and um it's 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 really a pleasure to see someone who's so engaged intellectually and uh, in terms of his research as well so it's it's just great um to have uh, had this chat